Welcome to Heart Health Radio with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Heart Health Radio. Heart Health Radio. Oh, oh, oh. HeartHealthRadio.com. Heart Health Radio. Heart Health Radio is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action, talk to your doctor. You can get better, stay healthy, and spot medical misinformation just by listening to your radio to Heart Health Radio. I'm Dave Alexander. This is Dr. Franklin Weefold. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. Good. Are you having a good holiday season? I did. I, <laughs> I spent Christmas yesterday with two of my favorite beings. My dogs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I, I thought you were talking to your grandkids. Well, but apparently. Uh, last weekend, if you noticed, the show was kind of fuzzy. I was in Atlanta <laughs> visiting my grandkids. So, you know, it, it, is, it was good to be back. I see my younger daughter tomorrow. So we've had one of these uh, mixed family type Christmas vacations. But yeah. yesterday I cooked turkey for the dogs. <laughs> and it was good. <laughs> 20 okay. pounder. They're going to be eating turkey for a week. Yeah, I'm not sure that's good for them. Yeah, you know, dogs should be able to eat anything. <laughs> okay, all right. On the show today, we're going to talk about vaccine for COVID, and there's a lot of issues relating to this. So we're going to dig into it this segment. We're also going to talk about San Francisco. On a statistical basis, it was. it's more likely that an individual died of OD, overdosing on medicine, yeah. than COVID. But it's important to say, not overdosing on medicine, overdosing on narcotics. Okay, that they narcotics. Bought well, because people think that these people are overdosing on what the doctors have given them. Right. And it's 80% are street drugs, 19% are pills that you can get with a prescription that are being used illegally without a prescription. Right. But less than 1% of people who overdose got their legitimate prescription from a physician. And I want people to know that. It's not necessarily the doctors who are causing these overdoses, although that's become the common theme. Right. That it's our fault. And I think that's something people should realize that it's not. We should have talked about that the family who owned the company that yeah, made Purdue. all those yeah, Purdue Pharma. And, and you know. I think they were in the wrong um, because they told their drug reps to sell this stuff on the basis of it not being addictive. Right. And that was wrong. And a lot of people did get addicted to it, and it was a terrible thing. And in certain parts of the country, like parts of West Virginia, where there's a lot of poor white people who are out of work, and I'm yeah. using the term white not to distinguish it and say they're different, but it's true. And this is a big leading cause of death now among poor white people is drug overdoses. Right. And so there were uh, physicians who were prescribing hundreds of thousands of these pills. They're the ones at fault, not the physicians in general. Very good. And we're also going to talk about the world's first artificial heart. It's not really the first. Well, it's the first that was approved, um, and it pumps like a heart. They had the Jarvik 7 yeah. a, while, a long time ago. And the Jarvik 7, um, it didn't work because too many clots formed. Well, apparently the French, ooh la la, have yeah. solved the problem with the clotting. <laughs> And it's, it's great. It's going to be great. Very we'll talk good. about that. And your phone calls at 919 
860-9783. So, vaccines. We're all getting in line. I'm, yeah. I'm way down at the back of the no, line. No, actually, but- you're not going to be way down at the back. I no? think, well, with the number of doses that are now being produced, the fact that both Pfizer and the other company, Moderna, have the mRNA viruses, which we talked about before. They're yeah. artificial globules that produce the spike protein of the uh, virus in your own body so you can develop an immune reaction to it. They're going to be a tremendous number of doses coming through. Okay, now, good. there is another one coming out that is, I think, the Oxford virus. I think it's going to work. There's some controversy. So I think you're going to see January and February ramp up. Right now, the people who are getting it are the frontline healthcare workers. And right. I think they're the ones who should. And we'll talk about some controversies. And the susceptible elderly. So you've got CVS. Can you believe it? CVS is in the nursing homes and extended care facilities, and they're giving out their own people in terms of, you know, they're they're paying them to go out. CVS is paying them to go out and vaccinate these people. And I think it's a fantastic thing. Now, Um, is it the medical professionals, the people caring for seniors? So, for example. And the seniors? And the seniors. Okay. Right. The next is going to be the vulnerable population. Um, diabetics who uh, are very high risk, people who have pre-existing conditions like uncontrolled high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, they're going to get it next. Um, And, you know, I'm probably going to be in somewhere in the middle, a physician on the front lines in the office. Um, If it turns out that there are a lot of vulnerable people who haven't got it yet, I'm going to give my vaccine to one of them. Okay, I'm going to do that. You've got... Thousands of people in your practice. Right. 6,000. Who, who are Vulnerable. in that category. Right. And there are two that I wish the vaccine had come out for. Right. Because, you know, they were obese, um, lung disease, heart disease, and they caught it from a young person who came into their home and they died. Wow. And I just wish that I had had a vaccine for these people because they were wonderful. Yeah human beings and it's just it's one of the tragedies that we have all right so where we're going to start with the vaccine well first uh, of all take the vaccine when there's so much yeah when it's offered yeah well i have in fact two people in my office who are refusing to take the vaccine and they think it was rushed um and they say the fda only gave it an emergency approval not a complete and thorough approval and while that's technically correct i i want people to believe that the best minds in medicine and science have gone through the data, and it's an effective vaccine. Now, we're seeing some allergic reactions. Yeah, what's the deal? That we didn't see. I think they may have excluded people with severe allergies uh, from the initial studies, because this wasn't talked about right. until people started getting it. It looks like it's polyethylene glycol, which is you know, like an artificial lipid that's used to stabilize the vaccine. And it looks like pe- some people may be highly allergic to it. Um, there was a doctor who went into anaphylactic shock. And the interesting thing is that he whipped out his EpiPen, treated himself, and he got better. Now, why would you carry an EpiPen unless you had a history of a severe previous allergy to something else. Right. So the only people that I would warn about this are people who carry an EpiPen because of severe allergic reactions. I don't know of bee stings. That's a common one. Yeah. Chocolate. 
Uh, that's a common one. I don't know. But get the vaccine when your doctor, he or she says it's okay. We're going to learn more about these allergic reactions. But th- you come back from them. They give you steroids. They give you epinephrine. And you come back. But everybody else, I mean, there are all these things that people are saying, you know, that the COVID vaccine will give you COVID. It will not. It is not the COVID virus. It is right. an artificial vaccine. Um, the COVID vaccine is not going to be mandatory, um, especially because the FDA technically only approved it for emergency use. Mm-hmm. I had this discussion with my office, and I was enlightened by someone in the office and said that you, there, the, you cannot prevent somebody in a hospital setting from working if they refuse to get the virus, I mean, the vaccine yeah. yet. Okay, forcefully administered by the military. You're reading the myths. Yes, they will not do that. And then it's not impossible to make an effective effective vaccine in one year. We've done it. And just, you know, imagine all the people who've looked at the data, who developed this vaccine. It's a new way of doing it. It is a miraculous thing that we've done this. But we have done these things before. Right. When you put science onto technological advances, it, it works. Okay, okay. Uh, 1961, Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon. Yeah. He did it in 1969. That's eight years ago. Right. So 2012, you remember 2012? Mm-hmm. Like it was yesterday. Yeah. And so that's how long it took for us to go to the moon. It's taking us a lot longer now. I'm not quite sure why to go to the moon. But the vaccine worked. The technology was there. We applied it, and it's fantastic. Now, there's no microchip in the vaccine. You sure? Track you. I don't know. I mean, come on. You know, I'm still concerned when I drive by a 5G tower. Right. You know. That's giving you COVID. That's going to get me sick or something. Yeah. So I, I believe everything on the internet. I, I do really too. do. Yeah, but yeah. I really want to tell people out there that if you get the opportunity to get the vaccine, when you get the opportunity, please, yeah, get it. Yeah, it's going to be effective, and it's you know if you don't get it for yourself, mm-hmm. get it for your family, but also get it for the country because there's only one way we're going to get out of this morass, both this economic and cultural and social morass, is when we achieve herd immunity. And that is that means that enough people have gotten the vaccine and those who have had the virus that it's no longer a pandemic in the country and we can go back to being the way we were. That we don't have to necessarily worry about grandma getting the COVID because so many people around her won't get the COVID and then transmit it. Right. Is that the way herd immunity works? Right. And so, you know, if 80, well, this is something we'll talk about under Hall of Shame, but yeah. um, it, it looks like 80%, I'll, I'll go out on the limb, 80% of the country has to either be vaccinated or have recovered from COVID in order for the country to be safe enough to be said we have herd immunity and we're not going to have constant spread. Is it the way this spreads? Is it such that, for instance, I may have been exposed to somebody. Right. I might have shaken somebody's hand. Right. And they've got active COVID. I just came into the studio here. Right. Are you at risk? Well, I think we're, if, we're at risk. If, if I don't get it, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. Right. I haven't been 
infect it. Right. You just pass it on through a handshake. You didn't touch your face, et cetera, right. et cetera. I think the answer to that is we're all at risk. Okay. We're all at risk. And even think about it. Most of the cases, 70% got it at home. Yeah. And so, you know, grandma gets it from her grandson right. who was hanging out at a friend's house where it was a spreading event. He came back, wasn't symptomatic, gave it to grandpa, she, grandma, she gets yeah. it, and she dies. Yeah. So we're all at risk 100% of the time, which is why we need to be careful. Now, when I say this, I'm not going out on that limb of the Democrats and some others who say we should completely shut down. A shutdown, in my opinion, and in the opinion of some, uh, many other smart people, doesn't work. And it's not necessary. And if you look at countries where they beat this, Taiwan, they never shut down. Yeah. They did it in a way that makes sense. You don't take everybody and put them in a closet. You, you shelter those who are at risk for getting a severe infection, and you test. And when somebody tests positive, symptomatic or not, they go into quarantine. And then think about it. When all the people who've gotten it are in quarantine. Two weeks later, the virus is dead. Right. That's how Taiwan did it. They had their first transmission in country last week. And think okay. about it. I mean, yep. it's amazing. Seven dead out of a country of 30 million. And they're back to work. They went to school. They never shut down. Right. Because they sheltered the elderly and they Enforce quarantines. Now, you know, there are, we had a lady on the show two weeks ago who said that quarantines were, were wrong. You don't have the right to hurt somebody. Uh -huh. You just don't. And so if you go into quarantine for two weeks, I, I think that's a small price to pay for saving the country. And, yeah. I, you know, I don't see how an individual right, you know, to be free is impaired by the individual right of me not to let you hurt me and so quarantines are the way to go not okay. shutdowns all right well we're gonna we're gonna have the shame segment in just a moment <laughs> uh doctors gupta and fauci are appearing once again in the shame segment again later on in the show about a half an hour from now believe it or not we're gonna put the shout outs where we talk about people who are you know doing and saying things that are really positive to, there's a fellow by the name of de Blasio mm, in the in the shout outs. In the shout outs. You're sure he's not in the shame? Uh, you know, and this is the reason why we're including him is he did something good. He did. And we recognize those on the political spectrum who are uh, opposite from <laughs> me. I recognize when they do something good. In fact, we we did this a long time ago. Remember yeah. Omar? We shouted out Omar once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so this Omar. Is the same yeah, thing. Yeah. Also Dippin' Dots. There's a connection. Yes. Trust me, there's a connection yes. to Dip the COVID story. Dippin' Dots and COVID. Don't fear the Dippin' Dots. They're actually good. That's coming up on Heart Health Radio. <laughs> Telephone number here, 919-860-9783. Who should be ashamed this week? Well, I hate to keep saying about the Fauci Follies because, <laughs> you know, I actually like the guy and I think he means well. Uh -huh. If you look at his schedule, I mean, his schedule is, you know, he, he works 18 hours a day. 17 hours is spent 
in on radio and on TV giving interviews. Anybody who goes through that time wow. and time again every day is bound to make some mistakes. And, sure. You know, he, he's made a couple big ones. Um, I think that he lied about about masks when he knew they would be helpful. And he lied because he said that he didn't want ordinary people on the street to take the masks from healthcare workers. Yes, this was long ago. Yes, right. months but and months. now, he's talking about herd immunity. And he first told the country that if we got 70% of people vaccinated, we get herd immunity. And then a week later, he said 80%. And now he's saying 90%. So someone in the press finally called him on it. And he said, well, you know, I lied to you. I wanted, you know, to get people to get the vaccine and think, uh, oh, yeah, we've got just a little ways to go. And then as we got on in the weeks, I just gave the right, the right answer. Now, this is the guy who criticized President Trump when the president was caught by Bob Woodward saying, yeah, this is a dangerous virus. We've really got to take it seriously. And everybody said he had done the opposite. And Fauci got up and said, we need transparency. You know, just tell the truth to the public. And so what makes this a shameful thing is that I can't stand people who point out something that somebody else did wrong and do it themselves. So that's that's shameful. And we're, I don't know what the answer on herd immunity is, but number one, I don't think we know. And number two, if you do know an answer, tell us the truth, because you told us that we should tell the truth. Okay. And how about uh, Sanjay Gupta? Well, I mean, the thing about Sanjay is that I think he is a a really, really, really good guy. And I think that he means well all the time. But the biggest problem with Sanjay is that he doesn't really want to tell the scientific truth sometimes because the truth hurts. And what's the truth? The truth is that you're very unlikely to get it in a church. Okay. And so he has an article he published, The Five Places You're Most Likely to Catch COVID. And the first was the House of Worship. Now, you know that's a big controversy. There have been stories where there were super spreader events in in churches. But it's only 1.3% of all transmissible cases have been traced to a church. He also says hotels. Don't go to hotels. Well, I hate to say it, Uh, that's also less than 1% of transmission tracing has been linked to a hotel. Now, one thing that is controversial is a bar. And I think that uh, you have to separate bars from restaurants, okay? If you've been in mm-hmm. bars, and I haven't gone to bars in a long time because I'm old, but people congregate <laughs> next to each other. They're talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. They're hugging each other. Okay, trying I'm, increasingly yeah. to get closer to right. each other. Yeah. yeah. Over the course of the night. He talks about restaurants. And I, I thoroughly disagree with him about restaurants. Have you been to a restaurant? Sure. The, the servers are wearing masks. Yes, they are. The tables are wiped down. Mm-hmm. You have to wear a mask until you sit down. Yep. And then when you're at the table and you're eating and you're eating with people, that's fine. But it's less than 1% have been traced to a restaurant in terms of contact tracing. Where are we getting this? We're getting it. 
when young people congregate in a small apartment like they did in college. Uh, right. And when the colleges were open, they were told not to do it. Of course, they're not going to obey the rules. And that's where it spread. It spread from there. They went home for Thanksgiving. They hung out at home and they gave it to their parents and their grandparents. So the key thing is that other countries that have stayed open, and I'm going to go back to Taiwan. I always go back to Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. They never closed. And you look at Sweden. Sweden got hit hard, but they didn't get hit much harder than we did, and they never closed down. Yeah. And so we've got millions of people losing their jobs, and we're really going to see that all these things we did probably didn't work. And what needs to work is contact tracing, testing, and quarantine, and those people who are susceptible, they need to shelter at home. And when that, when you talk about shelter at home, it doesn't mean just staying at home. It means not letting young people who are most likely asymptomatic into your house. And uh -huh. that may be tough because, yep. you know, elderly people need socialization just like everybody else needs it. But it's, it's a shame. Now, there's an article I saw in about five different places right. saying, I'm a longevity expert, and here's everything I eat in a day to live long. Well, now, the guy's not even, he didn't even look even like he's MD. in his 60s. He's not even an MD. I mean, okay, there's some called blue zones, and this guy really, really promotes this concept that in Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, these uh -huh. are what he calls blue zones. They live longer. Uh -huh. And he traces it back to what they eat. And he, he talks about the no-no diet, essentially. They, they try to stay away from white flour products. Now, the Japanese eat a lot of white rice. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But basically, he says, if you start to eat the way that they eat, that you're going to live longer. And I hate to say it. It's not true, okay? Longevity, and, and you talk about people living into 100. That's almost entirely genetic, okay? There's no way around that. Yeah. I tell my patients, I have all these people who are 90 and who are in the, in the fastest growing age segment in this country and in the world is 100-year-old. Yeah. There were 50,000 in 1900. I'm sorry, 5,000 over the age of 100 in 1900. Now there are close to 300,000 in this country alone over the age of 100. And it, it's a lot of factors, but those people who live that long are genetically blessed with a, an ability to fight off infections and to fight off inflammation and repair. Now you do want to eat right, but don't fool yourself into believing that if you turn, if you know, you're, you're turning Japanese, like the song says, that you're going to live. If I, if I only eat like the Japanese, then I'll live forever. And the Japanese who move here, not, yeah. the Japanese who move here, yeah. they live just as long. They do. Yeah. Genetic. Okay. Genetics. We're talking more about dipping Dots in just a little bit. Also, right heart or right side of the heart failure. That's coming up on Heart Health Radio. Now back to heart health. Have a question for Dr. Weefall? Call 919-860-9783. And by the way, the lines are open. 919-860-9783. A lot of people hear the show and they say, it's such a high quality show. It sounds like it's from out of town. 
And it sounds like the best of show. Highfalutin. It's ju- we're just so professional moment to moment that people think, no, call. they're not going to call it. Please do call Actually, in. Actually, they make it more professional sounding when they call in. And the other thing is that they, they hear the show and they say, well, they're already talking about something. Yeah. We'll, well talk about you anything. Know, I don't want to interrupt them interrupt. in the middle of something. Yeah. 919-860-9783. So there were some people who were cut out of... Well, yeah, you know, they they talk about frontline workers. Right. And there are things called interns and residents. Okay, let's let's also say the nurses are the most frontline. They deliver the care. And I'm going to use nurse in a term that includes, well, no, nurses, uh, technicians, the EKG people, the x-ray, everybody you can possibly think of. Right. They... Got, are going to get and need to get vaccinated. Now, the powers that be in the hospitals, in Stanford especially, left out, I think, the most important group of doctors, and that's the residents. Can you believe it? They vaccinated the chief executive officer who sits <laughs> in his office. They vaccinated all these physicians who are in labs yeah. doing lab research and they left the residents off the list. They're the ones going to the ER, turning over the patients, intubating, running the ventilators, doing all this work. I mean, I was a resident too, yeah. believe it or not. At Johns Hopkins, I did my internship and I did two years of internal medicine residency. And that was frontline work. Now, back then, they didn't even have blood draw people. We had to draw the blood. We had to start the IVs. Uh-huh. All this stuff. So now the residents have it a little better and that they have more time to learn and they're not staying up for 38 hours straight like we did. I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I mean, I I don't think they should. They're doing well. But that's not the point. Mm -hmm. They're at the front lines and Stanford left them off the list. So they're the ones running around getting exposed and they're not the ones. Did they change their mind? I think they're gonna. Uh, they, you know how these guys are. They say they might change their minds, but I sure as heck hope that if your son or daughter is a resident uh, and you're listening today, please, or if you're a resident, make sure that you get vaccinated. Well, my son-in-law is a resident. Did he get it? Yeah, he got it. Right. He got it. He was on. I'm assuming now, it was that's the at first East week. Carolina, right? This is at Vidant? Yeah, East Carolina University. East Carolina, right. So they've got it right. But Stanford got it wrong. So ECU may not beat Stanford in football, but they sure as heck beat them in medical care. <laughs> they made, okay? made more sense. All right. You want to talk about Dippin' Dots or do you want to talk about Dippin this doctor? Dots. Now, you know, I always talk about sugar, something not good. <laughs> but I'm going to give everybody a break, yeah. okay? Because I want you to support the Dippin' Dots company. Now, if those of you who don't know what Dippin' Dots are, they're these little teeny weeny balls of ice cream. Right. And they come out in these dots and you scoop them up and you eat them. And it's a cultural phenomenon. It's the dessert of the future. Yeah, really? I guess. Yeah. Well, it turns out that people who developed the freezers for Dippin' Dots were clairvoyant. Okay, yeah. because the Dippin' Dots has to be transported at minus 80 to 90 degrees. <laughs> and guess what? That temperature is, I've already talked about it, but it's the temperature that the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines have to be stored. So uh-huh. what did the Dippin' people do? They made their refrigerators, or should I say super freezers, available 
for use with the vaccines. Now, I don't know. Can you imagine all the Dippin' Dots that are melting right now? Oh, yeah, yeah. So this my thing. plea to everybody out there is uh, go in your car, keep the, the station tuned to us, yeah. and go buy some Dippin' Dots. Oh, sure. You know, and I'll give you a reprieve, okay? Eat the Dippin' Dots. But I think it's fantastic. We had, you know, who would have thought? I mean, I wouldn't have thought Dipmodots needed to be stored at a certain freezing temperature. Right. And, and you know, it gives, it gives honor to the company and the executive that they're willing to let their Dipmodots turn into Dippin' Goo <laughs> for the benefit of the country. And right. I think it's great. So go buy some. Yeah. Go Certainly at the state dots. fair because, you know, they're there. I, I don't see them anywhere else. There is a story about a black doctor. Yeah. She was born in uh, Jamaica, not Jamaica, Queens, near New York City, yeah. but in Jamaica in and the she, islands. Yeah, a and, fine physician, Susan, Dr. Susan Moore. Right. And she got COVID, and she has a lot of other pre-existing conditions. It was a lot of pain. Yeah. And because she asked for pain medicines and is black, one of the physicians who was treating her treated her as though she was a drug addict. And was rude, mm. was nasty, um, refused to give her uh, analgesics, morphine, the things, Demerol, the things that she needed. Yeah. And she finally got the nerve enough to complain. And they didn't take her seriously at first. And so finally, one of the nurses, one of the unsung heroes, had the nerve to go against this physician, this racist physician, and go to the powers that be. She got new doctors. She initially did well. Yeah. Um, but she had a lot of risk factors for uh, severe uh, infection with COVID, and she eventually died. Now, this story came to my attention because I'm going to tell my listeners out there, I have seen this. And I'm not talking about seeing it in the South. I think that everybody needs to be aware that the care that we give is often restricted by the prejudices that we have. So, for example, um, I'm Asian, uh, part Asian. I was in the hospital. I got incredibly excellent care. And they all assumed I was smart. They knew I was a doctor. They jumped on every single thing that I complained about. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't have anything to complain about except my health. I got better. But I have seen... I mean, I've come in on cases, uh, second opinions, where, you know, the concept was the patient was faking it, uh, they weren't um, to be taken seriously, uh, and I've come in because I have a lot of black patients, and I have a lot of um, them who I care for deeply, and they trust me, and they brought me in, and I could tell right away that there was a prejudice in terms of how they patient, the black patients, especially black women, were being perceived. And we, we were able to change things and, and make things for the better. Unfortunately for Dr. Moore, um, her illness was too severe to overcome. But, you know, if you're out there and, and you are black, and it is true that there are going to be people, not everybody, yeah. who aren't going to treat you the way you should be treated. And the answer is what Dr. Moore did, complain. Yeah. Complain specifically because it's important. And I think I'm, I don't know enough about the case to know if she would have survived. I don't know. But there's no reason anybody should be treated this way. And, and you know, it happens with, with Southern country people. Okay. I have a lot 
of people who may not have gotten education, but they were very smart. Right. Intelligence and education are not the same thing. Right, right. And they come to see me partly because I speak their language. I mean, partly because I can alter the way I explain things to terms that are explainable in their cultural milieu. Okay. But, you know, if you don't speak a certain way, people think you're stupid. And that's another form of prejudice. Right. And so we all have to assume nothing bad about each other. We have to assume the best and do what we can. What is right heart Failure. Just okay. one side yeah, let me, can let me, go bad? Sure. So you have two sides to your heart. You have the right heart, uh-huh. which is the right atrium and the right ventricle. And then you have the left heart, left atrium, left ventricle. That's why we have four chambers. The right atrium and the right ventricle move blood from the body after it's exhausted its oxygen and its nutrients and pump it into the lungs. And then the lungs breathe in your oxygen in the air and transport it back to the blood where it flows to the left ventricle. And then the left ventricle pumps and flows it to your body. The left ventricle's got a lot more pressure because that blood has to just get poured out of there and out to the body where there's a greater resistance. The right heart pumps to the lungs. Now, COVID affects the lungs when you get really sick. And that's what kills people. It's right. a respiratory failure. Well, the lungs have a blood pressure. You always think about blood pressure being what they take in your arm. That's the what we call the left side or systemic blood pressure, 120 over 80. So 120 is 120 millimeters of mercury. That's how far you can push a bar of mercury up off the ground. That's where we get this pressure. The pressures in the lungs are usually 15 or 20. Very. How do you tell that? Well, you put a little catheter in there, or you can do it with ultrasound. But it's well known that the pressures in the lungs are a lot lower. Now, what happens when your lungs get all scarred, and they get filled with fluid, and they're stiff? The pressure goes way up. So I have some patients who have what's called pulmonary hypertension, where it's just like hypertension in the rest of the body. The pressures go way up. Well, the right ventricle was never meant to pump that strong. So the left ventricle is thick, it's got a meaty muscle, and it's powerful and can pump against a pressure of 120. Yeah. The right ventricle can't. So one of the things they've noticed is that if you do an ultrasound, an ultrasound is a beautiful test. I mean, it, it's basically a wand. I call it the magic wand. And yeah. You've had it. Sure. You put it on someone's chest with a lot of goo, and it sends out these high frequency, even more than what a dog can hear, very high frequency sound wave. And they get reflected back off the tissue, and you can tell, you can make a picture. Well, when you use an ultrasound and you see the right heart's failing in a patient with COVID, that's a very bad sign. And you think about it, that's why it's bad. It's because the lungs are so bad. They're so full of fluid. The pressure in the lungs is so high, the right heart can't pump very well. And then the legs swell up. You get fluid in your belly. It all backs up like a clogged toilet. And so what they've discovered now is that an early ultrasound can tell those people who are going to get sicker versus those who may not get so sick because they can see the right heart failing. Skip in Raleigh, welcome to the program. You are on Heart Health Radio with Dr. Franklin Weefald. Hey, well, thank you so much for taking the call. In the interest of full disclosure, I've worked in the health system here in the area longer than either of you have been alive. Um, no and kidding. So just, uh, 
Good for you. That disclaimer out there. Um, Dr. Weefold made a comment earlier about integrity and telling the truth. Yes. Um, and so I've got to call him out because a week or two ago, Dr. Weefold told us about what a peaceful person he is. But as a cardiologist, he has more than once in his life cardioverted someone, which makes being kicked by a mule seem like being nuzzled by a rabbit. So I'm just saying, um, peaceful or not, a cardioversion is hardly a peaceful process. Well, it depends on how it was done to you. What's a cardioversion, guys? Well, a cardioversion is when somebody's in the wrong rhythm. Yeah. It can be not so bad. You're in atrial fibrillation and the top part's fluttering and you need to get back in normal rhythm to feel better. There is a bad type of cardioversion when the bottom part of the heart is just racing like a mad dog. That's called ventricular tachycardia. Or even worse, when your heart is basically in standstill. So it's fluttering with with ventricular fibrillation. So generally, you put these people to sleep. Okay, you give them intravenous Versed, which is a calming agent. And a lot of times you have an anesthesiologist there who's keeping them breathing. And then you give a short burst of electricity. And you've seen that on ER and those other things, other other shows where you take these paddles and you stick them on and you go clear and you hit it and boom. By the way, if you're ever in the room, clear means stop touching the gurney. Oh, that's happened. That's happened. It's one of those things. And, they and don't make clear to you, don't hang on right, to the bed. Right. So then now, instead of these paddles, we have patches. And if you have enough time, you put a patch on the front and patch on the side. And most of the time now, these are automatic. The automatic external defibrillator. Yeah. And, and you know, peaceful? Eh, you know, what's peaceful? I mean, it's peaceful to get back in normal rhythm. There are times. Yes. That I have done this without anesthesia because if I didn't, they would have died. So you can be conscious and your heart's just going bad and you're in total agony and the blood pressure is very low. I hit that. I hit that button and I warned them. I said, I don't have time to put you to sleep. We've got to do this right now. Hit the button. Kaboom. And they, they leaped up into the air. They're, you know, they arched their back, and they were in a lot of pain. And sometimes you got to do that. Skip, I think he's a peaceful guy. I, I think you're probably right. Hey, the other reason I wanted to call, I meant to do it three, three or four weeks ago. Um, you guys had a gentleman call. Um, I suspect, based on what he was describing, is he is a heart failure patient, and Dr. Weefold um, volunteered to call him back after the program. As Dr. Weefold knows, um, managing CHF is as much education as it is medication, yeah. and so I really appreciate your taking that extra time to give him the care that he really needed. Thank you so much for a great community service, and certainly to that young or older man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Skip. You know, I think people out there ought to know, this is the reason why I do this show. Yeah. And a a lot of people, you know, they they have hobbies. They make old cars better. They, you know, play a lot of golf. And I do play golf. I don't play very well. (laughs) But what I love to do, number one, is talk. And number two is educate. And so um, when I did a lot of surgery and a lot of, uh, you know, heart catheterizations, I was always running back to the hospital. And so you'd say, do this, do that. Okay. Well, now that I don't do that, I have so much more time. And I really enjoy being a physician more than I ever have. 
because yeah. there's education. And let me tell you, if you if, if somebody understands why they have to watch their weight every day yeah. and take an extra quote unquote water pill. Yeah so that they don't go into worsening heart failure. It takes time to explain that. And if they know that, they're going to do better. And so I think education is so important. If you can under... And yeah. the heart's not so difficult to understand. The pump, the pump, blah, blah, what happens, flowing. And the other thing is enough times explaining something. Did you, when you were in college, did you learn something the first time? No. no. I, I generally I still said don't. <laughs> it took me three times to yeah. learn something. Uh-huh. And so I see patients who have been discharged from the hospital who are more sick. I see them more frequently. And I go over the same thing, maybe in a slightly different way. Yeah. But after the third time, they get it. Okay. All right. Number one, the phone's ringing. Number two, we've got the shout-outs coming up. We're going to connect two vastly different stories. One is the fact that in San Francisco, overdose deaths are leading COVID deaths. And we're going to talk about cancer screening. That's coming up on Heart Health Radio on the Heart Health Radio Network. This is Heart Health Radio. We're shouting out Ann Abbott. I don't know who that is. Well, Dr. Abbott is a prime example of somebody who teaches us my dad's aphorism. And, you know, an aphorism is a, a, you know, a saying. And my dad used to say, it's not what you don't know that hurts you. Okay. It's what you know that isn't so. <laughs> That hurts you. So if you're out there and you've got a cholesterol blockage in your neck artery called the carotid artery, and it's flowing to your brain, they used to just cut those things out. And they used to just just 70% block. That means 70% of the diameter is taken up by plaque. They would cut it out. Thinking they were going to prevent a stroke. Well, the problem is... At 70% blockages, you only had a 1% risk of stroke over the next year. You had a 5% risk of stroke from the surgery. Well, Dr. Ann Abbott, for the last many, many years, has been saying we don't need to do these surgeries as often. With cholesterol um, medications, with diet changes, with lifestyle changes, we have a much lower risk of stroke now from a 70% blockage, so why do the surgery? And why put stents in the arteries? So she's right. The data have now been determined to prove that she's right. And so the lesson out there is that if you've got a blockage, and I check for these every day, the only time I send someone to surgery is if it's 99% blocked, Mm -hmm. barely a trickle of flow. That's been shown to reduce the risk when you cut those things out. It's called an end arterectomy. Um, But the ones that are moderate and even a lot of cholesterol, but no symptoms, I'm treating medically. And guess what? Within a year or two, I can see them improve. You do that ultrasound, you can actually visualize the plaque getting smaller. So now she's been put in charge by the American Heart Association of coming up with new guidelines about what to do. I mean, she had published this work and there was still surgery programs pushing these procedures. Now, the second person. Yeah. De Blasio. Now, de Blasio bloviates more than I do. And by that, I mean, he just goes on and on and on. But when somebody (laughs) says something 
that was surprisingly good and a recognition uh-huh. that we have to stop this. And I, me included. Yeah. We have to stop just criticizing each other. We can point out when they did something wrong and say we disagree. But I'm going to point out when de Blasio did something he, right. He's the mayor of New York City. Yeah. And he's he the mayor said of New York, what? And he said, I think the president and his administration contributed substantially to getting the vaccine in this kind of time frame. That's a really good thing. That was a quote from him. So shout out to Bill de Blasio. I know you hate President Trump, but but <laughs> recognizing. Well, I mean, come on, you know he does because what he says. But recognizing that President Trump and his administration did the right thing. Very and good. I like Bill even more now. Tatiana, welcome to the radio program. You're on Heart Health Radio. Hello. Hi. Dr. Franklin, thank you so much. I love every Saturday. I learn so much from you. You are a very great person teaching about diet and stuff. Yes. But when you mention Dr. Fauci, yes. you know, just think he is in this position from 1984, director of NIAID. Yes. He's he been there since since the, he yes. Change every four years president. Yes. How come we don't change this person? Okay. How come... Fauci has not lost his job, and all this time, he's kept in that position. Because he's a great man. And, yeah, and so I make nice these, sure, no. I think that one of the things that we can learn how to do is recognize greatness. And yet, hold them to the standard. Yeah, hold them to the standard they hold, them, they hold everybody else to. So I was actually at the National Cancer Institute when he was at beginning, at the beginning of his career. He did some things that are absolutely amazing. There's a disease called Wegener's granulomatosis. Your nose starts to get eaten up by your own immune system. Out of the blue, he was an infectious disease specialist, but out of the blue, he cured that illness, okay? He found out by, you know, serendipity that he could cure that illness. Yeah. Now, in the beginning of the AIDS crisis, he was there. He guided the, the science behind finding these therapies that we have now that may not be a cure, but they hold it in check. So HIV has now become a chronic illness, not a death sentence. So there's no doubt in my mind that Anthony Fauci is a great man. He deserves to be in the pantheon of physicians like William Osler from Johns Hopkins. There's no doubt about it. But when he says things, we need to call him on him. And, right. and he calls on everybody else. We need to call him on him. And that doesn't diminish his greatness. Tantiana, thank you very much for calling. For folks in the Raleigh area, we have another hour of Triangle, or sorry, of, of Heart Health Radio coming <laughs> Triangle up. Triangle Trader. Yeah, of Heart Health Radio coming up right here. <laughs> Heart Health Radio is for information purposes only. Before taking any action, consult your doctor. Welcome to Heart Health Radio with board-certified cardiologist and internal medicine specialist, Dr. Franklin Weefall. Heart Health Radio. Heart Health Radio. Oh, oh, oh. HeartHealthRadio.com. Heart Heart Health Radio is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action, talk to your doctor. You can get better, stay healthy, and spot medical misinformation. And if you don't spot it, we'll spot it. Dr. Franklin Weefold in studio. Hello, sir. Hello. Happy holidays to you. It is great. 
We are in, I don't know whether you've heard about it or not, but we're in a pandemic. And it, uh, yeah, the numbers... We, I think we've heard about it. The numbers have not improved. Our friends in yeah. Virginia are looking at an increase between fifteen and 17,000 over the last week. And in North Carolina, we're now over 3,000 currently hospitalized. Wow. Which, you uh. know, we're at the point where the fear is... We could bump up. It was not more than a month and a half, two months ago. We were at eight or nine hundred. Yeah, we really had for a had while come down. Um, they think it might be the Thanksgiving bump. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see what happens at Christmas. But I think I think more people uh, decided not to have large Christmas gatherings, and mm-hmm. so we'll see. The other thing, do we have the audio ready? We're good. Uh, let me just tell you that there's a. Uh, reporter Diane Macedo from ABC News introduces a story out of South Africa. And, you know, as if you didn't, things weren't bad enough. This happens. And yet another variant of COVID-19 has been detected in the UK. This mutation was originally identified earlier this month in South Africa. Now the UK is shutting down travel from South Africa. Now, here's the thing. This is not the UK variant that we heard about one. two weeks ago. It's another one. This is and, another. You know, this is one of the reasons uh, that I think the virus is going to stick around until we get everybody vaccinated. Viruses are so rapid in terms of their reproduction rate. They're not even living things. They're basically just chemicals that reproduce and burst out of cells and right. then reproduce again. And because of all that reproduction, mistakes come in, and they're called mutations. And a lot of mutations will just kill the virus. Yeah. And so what we were hoping this summer is that there'd be a bunch of mutations which would render it um, not dangerous. And I'm sure that happened. I'm sure there was a lot of COVID-19 that mutated into a benign form. Unfortunately, we've got a bunch that are mutating into a, a aggressive form. I don't know, and nobody really knows yet, whether these mutations are going to be more deadly. But the South African one is more contagious. And so by that, I mean it produces more viral particles quicker, and they can get out in the aerosols. And if you're not six feet apart or 12 feet apart, it's, it's a little more contagious. Now, what are these mutations? The spike protein, we've all heard about that. That's what the vaccine is against. The, it, it produce, the vaccine produces a spike protein in your own body. Your body recognizes it as a foreign invader, creates an immune response, and kills it. Well, the spike protein is mutating, and that's what's happening in these muta- mutated viruses. And so the spike protein in the UK had a mutation in one particular part, which made it bind stronger. And then the one in South Africa had the UK, the United Kingdom um, uh, mutation, plus another one. And so that one apparently is even more contagious, although it's not clear that it's more deadly. Now, here's the good news. Both Pfizer and Moderna have done some preliminary tests. And it looks like the vaccine will work against those two mutants. Mm -hmm. But what the UK is doing is shutting down from South Africa, which is what people did against Wuhan. But you know there's going to be leakage. You know that somebody's going to get over the border somehow. It's possible they've already done that. it's impossible to stop. So we've got to get this vaccine going. And please, take the vaccine. 
when it becomes available to you. Wow. So we've got the UK strain, the South Africa strain. And there are more. And there are more. Yes. Do you feel pretty confident at all that what we have in terms of vaccine is going to kill these Well, I just have to listen to the experts. I mean, the experts have been wrong in this situation, but nobody's perfect. I mean, one of the things that I I never criticized Dr. Fauci for was being wrong. Right. Um, Right, right, right. He was wrong when he said this wasn't going to affect the country, but he didn't do it on purpose. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so when scientists make a statement, and I always say it's my opinion or you can't, you can't, you know, bet the house on this. You have to give them some leeway when they're wrong. But I think the Moderna and the Pfizer people are telling us the truth as they know it, that the vaccine's going to take care of us in terms of these new strains. But I guess only the future will tell. My sure. notes for the next couple of minutes do not include a lot from the COVID stories because we've got to deal with this artificial heart that's right. been invented and now you can get it in, in France. I, I've got in my notes, just walk, play in dirt, uh, and overdoses. Yeah, we're going to yeah we're gonna talk about play in dirt. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the overdose situation in San well, Francisco. It's really bad in San Francisco right now. Um, yeah. San Francisco is one of the California cities that said, hey, you're homeless, come on down. Sure. And they didn't provide shelter. They didn't provide food. They didn't provide sanitation. And they had... Literally, tens of thousands of homeless people congregate in the streets. Now, the most amazing thing, they're outdoors. And so in terms of the homeless population, we were really afraid that there was going to be a pandemic uh, or the pandemic would be really bad with them. And it hasn't. Now, here's the interesting thing. Because there hasn't been as much attention and care for these people, they're dying at rates greater than the rate of COVID. The entire city's COVID deaths, right? nowhere near the city's deaths due to narcotic overdosing. And it, it's, it's 2,600 um, this year. And in 2018, 441. And fentanyl is the big problem because fentanyl is cheap. Heroin, you got to grow in a poppy, you got to... Um, make it in Colombia or wherever they make it. You got to transport it here. Fentanyl now you can you can cook just like you can cook uh, meth from methamphetamine. You can make it out of Sudafed. Yeah. So it's an artificial heroin, and it's much more deadly. So we're seeing that as a reason people now are taking fentanyl, and a lot of times they're being told it's heroin, so they're taking a lot of it, mm. and they wind up overdosing. That's the number one cause of overdose deaths today. And I think that what this shows is that you can't just focus on COVID when it comes to preventing deaths. They have to do something. I mean, they invited these individuals, these groups of people to live on their streets. They have a moral obligation to do something about it, in my opinion. I've also connected this to the cancer screening story. Oh, yes. Because the same thing is happening that happened with the overdose deaths. Right. They're being ignored. People are not getting their cancer screenings done. Right. So what are they? Colonoscopies. I had the hardest time 
And I don't blame these physicians. They were following protocol. But a colonoscopy is an aerosol-producing procedure, okay? We will not go into detail, okay? But okay. When, you, Thank you. when you insert a probe into yes. that particular place, yes. you can produce a lot of gas. And so they weren't doing colonoscopy. Or, or discover you a can lot discover of gas. gas. Yes. Yeah. And um, they weren't doing mammograms because they, the um, radiology departments were trying to keep things to a minimum. And they said, well, you know, mammogram, that's selective, blah, 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 blah. Right. They didn't do it. And the other thing is that some of the OBGYNs and some of the family practice people weren't doing pelvic exams where you can do what's called the pap test. And the pap test can screen for cervical cancer. And, and really save a lot of lives because some of the treatments for cervical cancer are non-surgical. They involve a colposcopy where they take out part of the cervix. So, These weren't being done. So the bottom line is yeah. what's going to happen now? Well, I think we're going to see a lot more breast cancer. Um, we're going to see a lot more invasive breast cancer because a lot of times a mammogram doesn't catch it early. Right. But it catches it early enough so that even if it has spread, it's still not in that stage where it's incurable. But we're going to see many more women slip through. We're yeah. going to see cervical cancers that would have been treated with, you know, a minimal type of, of and surgical intervention that are now going to need, you know, hysterectomies and chemotherapy. Right. <coughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you as somebody from the other side, you're seeing it from the <laughs> physician side. I'm seeing it from the patient side. I didn't visit my doctor for six months because I didn't want to. Okay. And, and, and that's been was, my problem, And too. there was no pressure from my family. Oh, yeah, we want you to walk into the doctor's office. They, they didn't say that at all. They said, nah, Dave, just ignore yeah, it. Yeah, and, and the whole, you can't do a cancer screening through a telemed visit. You just can't do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll talk more about this. Um, we're going to talk about that artificial heart. Just walk and play in dirt. Good advice from the doctor today. On Heart Health Radio, on the Heart Health Radio Network. As Grandma used to say, you ought to be ashamed. You yeah, should just be ashamed. Be ashamed. Yourself. Shame on you. We're going to get to Keith on the line in just a moment. This is Heart Health Radio. Who are we shaming? We're, um, well, this guy, Harold Schmidt, okay? <laughs> I mean, he, he's come a, on. He's a medical ethicist. Well, I would say he, he should, he sh, he's up Schmitch Creek, okay? <laughs> because this guy is one of the wacko lefties who thinks that you should be apologizing for being white. But not only apologizing for being white is not get the COVID vaccine because you're white. And I think it's just terrible. I mean, he's, quote, unquote, an ethics professor at the yeah. University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. And so he does say that essential workers should get priority for the Kroner vaccine, but he doesn't think vulnerable white people should. And he claims that, this is a quote, society is structured in a way that enables white elderly to live longer anyway, instead of giving them additional health benefits, let's start to level the playing field by not letting them get the vaccine. Wow. And, you know, let me tell you something. Yeah. For someone to say that, I think, betrays the fact that they are 
cold-hearted. And, you know, these, these, these people, they claim to want to love a certain type of minority, you know, or unrepresented, how they, whatever they want to call it. But to turn around and vent hatred at white people at the same time. Yeah. And this guy's white. Yeah, but he's not old, so it doesn't apply to him. I guess not. But it anyway, doesn't apply to shame him. Shame on him. Shame on him. Shame. Keith in Raleigh, you're welcome to Heart Health Radio. How you doing? Good afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, I had a I had a board certified internist for 26 years and he retired. Oh no. He, I'm sorry. I said oh no. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, I Keith. Interrupted you. I board and he retired, and he had me on uh, some some medication for my blood pressure, and it was for you know this was a this was a, a large uh, medical firm, and I went to see another doctor, and he says, oh no 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 no, that doctor gave you the wrong medication for your blood pressure, and he spent fifteen minutes looking through the PDR, and he gave me another prescription. Then I went back and I saw another doctor, and the other doctor says, oh, no, 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 all of these guys are internists. And he says, oh, no, 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 that's wrong. And then I went to see my cardiologist. He says, oh, no, that, 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 all these medications are wrong. Who the devil do you see to have a right diagnostic done? Is When they say board certified, is that better than just walking into a regular doctor's office or or what is the situation? Uh, you know, it, it's a tough question. I'm board certified in internal medicine and cardiology. What does that mean? It means I took the test. So I went through these residencies that are, quote, unquote, approved by the grand poobahs, the ones who are in control of what they call credentialing. And I went through cardiology, and I went through internal medicine, and then I sat down and took the tests, and I passed. Now, does that mean I'm smarter than somebody else? Unfortunately, maybe not. And the thing about who to choose as a physician has to be sort of a personal one. They like to hang, and I, I put on my shingle. I mean, do doctors still have shingles? No. Yeah, it's a little thing that used to hang out. My, no, I have can, a shingle, but I don't You can get out. a shot for that. Yeah. Oh, Lord have mercy. Anyway, I say that I'm board certified so that people think I'm pretty smart. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are smarter. One of the ways now to get, you have to be recertified. And so you have to keep up and take these other tests. But what I would never do is criticize another physician's treatment plan. Because let me tell you, there's so many ways to skin a cat and so many ways to treat high blood pressure. And, you know, for one doctor to say it's the wrong medicine and another doctor to say, no, no, those two guys were wrong. And then to another doctor say all three of them were wrong. I would never do that. Even if I felt there was a medication that was more appropriate. Uh, for example, there's certain medications you don't want to give to people who have kidneys that are weak. There are certain medications that don't work as well in blacks as they do in whites. There are certain medications that don't work for Asians as well as whites. That's not being racist, it's being scientific. But I think that as a physician, you want to reassure the patient and tell them, hey, that was a good idea, because it is. It's a good idea to treat your blood pressure. But I think maybe these might be better for you in the long run. So, you know, I don't know if a board-certified physician is better than a non-board-certified physician. 
It depends if that non-board certified physician just decided not to take his boards. You know, maybe he was too busy taking care of his people, yeah. taking care of his 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 uh, patient. But it's a sticky issue. And coming from a board's double board certified physician, I want you to know that my ex-father-in-law was never board certified. He was what you call a general practitioner. He was smart as a whip, and he did everything the same way that I would have done it, not necessarily say it was the absolutely correct thing, but you don't have to be board certified to be a good doctor. How would you proceed then? Would you go to a, to a general hospital and say, hey, listen, where they have a, uh, you know, a bunch of doctors, and you say, hey, listen, I'm willing to pay you guys, which I have the money to do. We'll say $500,000, and let's find out what the real problem is. Uh, what should you do? Well, the interesting thing is that most hospitals now require you to be board certified. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So you're going to get a board certified physician at a hospital because most of them now require a new physician or a physician for the last 15 years to have board certification. Keith, do you have a really unique set of pre-existing conditions? Well, I, not really. I mean, they're pre-existing, but the thing is, you know, uh, should I? Should I go to a really super-duper hospital? Like I said, I have the money to have any kind of test or any kind of doctor. But the thing is, when you keep seeing doctors and they come up with different uh, solutions, you become disillusioned, I think, after a time. Uh, And that is true, and that is one of the hardest things to deal with in medicine today. Um, You have a lot of competing issues. I mean, for example, in Raleigh alone, you have... A set of Rex doctors, and uh-huh. a set of weight med doctors, and then there's also a set of Duke doctors. And I've referred to many different ones. The answer is not that there's one set of people who are better than the other. There is a personal relationship that you need to develop with a physician that you can trust. And the way you can know you can trust your physician is not that he says he's right all the time. A good physician says, when I'm wrong, I'm going to admit it, and I'm always going to try to do the right thing. And that's humanity. You can't make a, uh, a perfect physician, even if you are board certified. So what would you do? What do I do? I have a doctor, and I'm going to say her name, Renee Watson, and she's my personal physician. And I don't let myself get treated by myself. Um, I go to Renee. I say, what do you think? And we have a group of people that we all work with. So when I went into atrial fibrillation, we, we agreed. We called my buddy, Pablo Natrepko. He fixed me in about an hour. <laughs> right. And, and it's a very sticky wicket. Um, but, you know, it's hard. And I can't tell you, you know, where you live, who to go see, and what to do. But, I, you know, it's not, you're not doctor shopping if you try some people out. Okay? And by that, I mean if your physician who you loved is retired – You know, you might even, if you can get a hold of them, and they probably already should have gotten somebody you referred to. That's actually one of the things that they're required to do. But if you don't like your physician, talk to your friends, talk to some neighbors, and, you know, um, they'll be able to steer you the right way. I I can't promote everybody. You know, how many times can you you talk to your friend and one friend says, oh, go to Dr. A, and the other friend says, go to Dr. B. Right. Pretty soon you have 15 doctors that everybody tells you to go to. Right. So Four out of five is, doctors you know, recommend. Uh, there yeah. must be some place, some doctor, or some hospital, or some diagnostician 
that can provide the right answer. Forgive me, but there used to be a, uh, a TV program on TV called Dr. House. Yeah, he was a diagnostician in, 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 in uh, Philadelphia, I believe. Right, you don't want him. He was working for uh, No, you don't want him. You yeah. want Dr. House. No, so I'm just... I'm using that. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And, and it's, I can't give you an answer. I can tell you if you ask me, is so-and-so any good? I would say yes, if they really were good. And, you know, the bottom line is, it's a difficult problem for everybody. How do you trust? Who, whom do you trust? How do you find the right physician? And it's a very difficult one, uh, a very difficult answer. I try to be the best I can be. I've made mistakes I've not had the best relationships with patients that I should have had. But listen, 30 years into this, I'm the best that I've ever been. And it's because of my emotional and maturity. Medicine is still still, uh, uh, not a conclusive uh, science, per se. Oh, absolutely. It's not at all. And what it is is the personal connection that you can have with another individual who has specialized knowledge and the physician who has that specialized knowledge can transmit that knowledge in a way that the patient can understand and also have a group of super specialists that he or she can refer to. So you think it's good to, to question a physician, or you just think you should just sit down there and say, okay, okay, okay? Or should you say, hey, listen, I heard about this. Should you question a physician or not? Questioning is one thing, um, but listen, I've always told my patients this. You can get a second opinion. If you're not sure, if your physician doesn't seem to know, get a second opinion. And let me, let me I don't know if you need something right now, but tell you what we're going to do. Let me call you back after the show, and yeah. we can go into more detail, and I can say some things that I really should not say over the air. Okay. All right. Keith, is just hang on. Do not hang up. And if you are listening on the radio, and I know you are, thank you. We've got more about the artificial heart. Why should we not worry about walking fast, but we should just every now and then take a walk? That's coming up on this radio program, Heart Health Radio, on the Heart Health Radio Network. Well, you know you make me want to shout, kick my heels up and shout, throw my hands up and shout. This is Heart Health Radio on the Heart Health Radio Network. Dr. Franklin Weefold, who we shouting out today? Well, a special shout out, uh, personal friends of mine. Um, whenever new life comes into the world, I get really excited. I, do you yeah. like babies? Yeah. I absolutely love babies. And so there was a beautiful baby girl born, Tilly Keenan, and she was born to really good friends of mine, Audra and Eddie Keenan, they live in my building, and Audra has a very special place in my heart because she helps me with my animals. She walks my dogs twice a day. Yeah. And so we were really worried because as she was getting more and more along in her pregnancy, I was—I have my dogs are 150, 200-pound dogs. I was right. afraid they're going to drag her down and knock her down, but we found a way around it. And so they've got this beautiful, beautiful daughter, Tilly, and wow. I've got pictures of her. She's got gorgeous cheeks and, and dimples. And it, it's just such a great thing in, in knowing people and, and being friends and uh-huh. sharing the wonderful joys of having a new child. Now, the other great thing is the grandparents. And and Audra's grandparents, I want to shout them out too, David Oweiler and Sarah Abraham, because, you know, it takes a family 
and takes multiple generations to raise a child. Now, this Christmas blessing for their family is also a reminder that we are blessed around this Christmas time with friends and family, and we want to keep them near and dear. And I know that Tilly, this little gorgeous baby girl, is going to have a great life because she's got great parents and obviously um, a great family. Excellent. Your advice is to take a walk every now and then. Well, yeah. I you mean, know, on a regular basis. Let me tell you something. You know, you want to exercise. And then you see these young people on the street, sweating, running, yeah. dying. And you might think, nah, I think I'm just going to go back <laughs> and watch a movie. And I've always said on this show that walking is the best exercise. Now, why is that? When you run... You're going to pound your knees. You're going to grind the gristle together. You're going to trip over the sidewalk. You're going to injure yourself. What happens when you're injured? You get inflammation. Inflammation is around the joints. It's going to recruit inflammation around your body. The immune system doesn't like your body to be destroyed by overexercise. So walking is great. Do you have to walk 10 miles? No. The studies have proven the Weefy hypothesis. Now, there's a couple of those. There's the... Weefy food hypothesis. There's the Weefy playing the dirt hypothesis. Yes, yes. 30 minutes, 30 to 35 minutes of a nice leisurely walk. You can stop every now and then and smell the roses. Good. But if you do that four times a week, you're getting all the health benefits that you need from pounding the pavement. And even it's even better because you're not destroying your body by wearing it out. From running or lifting weight. I mean, lifting weights is good and and anything Mm -hmm. in moderation. But I want to say this. The best exercise for your heart is a moderately paced walk, 35 minutes, four times a week. And it's finally been proven by studies. And I I just want to let everybody know that that, it really works. It's not necessarily the speed of your walk. the length of time. And so, you know, you suppose you walk, you know, a mile an hour. Well, that's, that's not that much. But, you know, <laughs> 35 minutes. And if you, if you want to take a break and, and, you know, a three, four-minute break, go ahead and do it. But keeping that heart pumping for 35 minutes and not – you don't have to just – you don't have to kill yourself. And that's what I wanted to tell people. It's now been proven to work. You know that 10,000 steps thing? Yeah. They used to tell you to get a pedometer and walk 10,000 steps. I never – forget my daughter was in middle school and I caught her walking around the front circle we had <laughs> and I said what are you doing? He says well we have a contest to see you get to 10,000 steps and I only did 8,000 but we got a new number now Yeah, 4,000 Yeah, 4,000 steps was just as good as 10,000 steps in terms of maintaining a healthy heart and a healthy body. Is that a week? Uh, a day. 4,000 steps is not much it's going to take me all year. No, it's not. Okay, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get him a pedometer, and, we, and I want you to look at it. I just I'm want not you to sure work. I want a pedometer. And we'll see how many steps you take. I guarantee you you're doing 4,000 steps a day. You know, it's funny. There was a staff meeting. The entire unit, okay, was in this staff meeting. I was late to it, and I happened to have the clunky shoes that day. Uh-huh. Okay, so they heard me coming down the hallway. Clunk. Clunk, clunk, clunk. I was, I got in the staff meeting. Somebody turns to me and says, I'm glad you're not hurrying, Dave. <laughs> it's like, 
You guys don't understand. You don't have this to is, hurry. This is my pace. You don't have to hurry. So how many thousands a day? 4,000 steps a day. And then that's not that hard There's to do. There's only seven steps to the refrigerator. Okay. I mean, that's... And then right. back. Well, that's put 14 down, right there. Put down the remote and get up and change <laughs> the channel. That's another 10 steps. And if you're like me, you change the channel every 30 seconds. All you right. know, you channel surf, so you'll be, you'll this be is This is advice for the non, uh, non-athlete right there. Advice for the non-athlete. Just walk slowly a couple of thousand steps. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Play in dirt. Why am I going to play? Why should I encourage my granddaughters to play in dirt? Well, what we've seen now with COVID is there are people who get it uh-huh. and don't react to it. They don't get sick. And people got um, polio in the 50s before Jonas Salk and the polio vaccine. Yes. Now, why did some not get sick and others do? It's called natural immunity. And people don't realize you don't necessarily have to have antibodies against a specific pathogen to have immunity to it. Natural killer cells, born natural, natural born killers, okay? They are the white blood cells that attack anything that's foreign. They yes. recognize the foreign nature. And yes. it looks as though, though the ability to produce natural born killer cells is enhanced when you're an infant, when you're a kid. And so the farm kids who play in the dirt, obviously. Sure. They didn't get polio. It was the rich white kids and the rich whatever kids living the city in kids. the suburbs. Yeah. And who had, you know, fairly sterile environments. You, you can't get dirty. And they got polio. Franklin D. Roosevelt, a prime example. Sure. So it's been proven time and time again that your immunity is much stronger if you are exposed to the natural pathogens. I mean, they're right now. Floating through the air, billions of virus particles. Why don't we just turn into a gamish? You will if you get HIV. What is HIV? It's an immunodeficiency. So what does that prove? It proves that we're fighting off pathogens all the time. Right. And you can strengthen your immune system when you're young by being exposed to a lot of the natural bacteria that are in our dirt and in the air. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. When you were a kid, I don't know if you, you were old enough to do this we used to get on our bikes yeah and tell our mom we'd be back for dinner that's right and we would go down to the creek and we would yeah be like beavers and make dams we would play baseball in the dirt uh-huh and you know i'm pretty healthy i don't get sick very much i think the last time i got a cold was about three years ago and i've always had a, a sort of natural immunity i have in fact a hyperactive immunity i got allergies and that is a, a sign that your immune system is overreacting to, you know, pot, ragweed or pollen or, or cat dander. But playing in the dirt when you're a kid is a really important thing. And remember, farm kids have stronger immune systems. I want you to be assured that my granddaughter is going to have a powerful immune system. Because, frankly, we can't keep her out of the dirt. Good. She walks. She finds a puddle. She sits down in the prettiest dress she can usually wear, sits right down, puts her feet in the puddle, and grabs dirt. That's the way it should be. It's a good way? Okay. Absolutely. The French have figured out how to make an artificial heart. Well, and, you know, this is actually a really, really, really big deal. Um, I don't know if you remember the Jarvik 7 from a long time ago. 70s? 
Uh, 80s? 80s. What was that guy's name? He advertised uh, uh, cholesterol pill, uh, Crestor, for a while. And the Jarvik 7, they designed it to be like a heart. So it had two ventricles. And they would there would be a bladder and air pushed on the bladder and forced the blood out. So Barney Clark, you remember him? Barney yeah. was the guy who got the first artificial heart. It did it 45 days. And what was the problem? Clots. So yeah. anytime the blood flows through these polyurethane bags, it wants to form little blood clots. And these blood clots can break off and go to the brain. They can go to the cause a stroke in the brain. They can go to the belly and ruin your your uh, abdomen, they can go to your leg and give you gangrene. Well, the French have been working on this ever since, 20, 30 years. I know there's Americans working on it too. And the first time they have had a success with a heart that looks like a heart, Yeah. okay? And so it's got two chambers, it's got uh, two um, pumping areas that um, collect blood and then whoosh it out. And it seems to work. It's been approved. And the interesting thing, it's been approved now as sort of what we call a bridge to transplant. So it's going to be first used in those people whose hearts are whacked and they're no good anymore and they can't get a new heart because we don't have enough donors. Right. And so it's great. But let me backtrack and say we already have this. And I've talked about it before. It's called the left ventricular assist device. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody who was trying to create an artificial heart was trying to create a mechanical device that functioned like a heart. Lub-dub, lub-dub. Because they used to think, well, you got to have this interruption in flow. You got to have flow, then no flow. Flow, then no flow. This intermittent flow. Well, somebody was smart enough to say, well, maybe the body doesn't need that. Maybe if we just put the blood through a propeller and whooshed it around the body <laughs> at an even pressure, sure, maybe that would work. And we said, nah. Well, these left ventricular assist devices have been around for 10 years, and they work. I probably have three or four who've gotten them in the last three or four years, and only one has gone to transplant. The other three are still alive. They're doing extremely well. And the nice thing about these left ventricular assist devices is, are, yes, you've got to be on a blood thinner, but the risk of clotting, you know, Barney Clark was on a blood thinner. I mean, he's still clotted. Right. I haven't seen a single one of these people clot. Yet, uh, please help me. This is an internal thing, well, right? It's underneath the heart. Okay. So the well, left ventricular assist is it in, in the your skin? Chest. It's in your chest. And it takes all the blood out of the tip of your left ventricle. That's the, the thing that ain't working. It ain't yeah. pumping the blood. And runs it through a tube into a propeller device. So yeah. it's whirring. Sure. And you think the blood would just get torn up, but they've designed these propellers so that they don't tear up the blood. And then it gets whooshed out the other side into your aorta, which is the pipe that carries blood to the rest of the body. And it works. Now, here's the interesting thing. Yeah. Take their blood pressure. <laughs> you don't get it. See, the blood pressure is because it, the heart pumps and you get a pressure of 120. It just it fills it with blood. <laughs> you and can't. then when the heart relaxes, you get a pressure of 70 when the heart's completely relaxed. And then you get it again. And it's the weirdest thing. And then you, it, it, the, the device is internal, but it's air-powered. And so you've got this, these tubes hanging out of your chest oh my gosh, yes. connected to a little backpack yeah. or a, what's it called? fanny pack. And you change the battery six times a day, and it works. So kudos to the French. Ooh la la. We've got the hot artificial. 
But the LVAD works, and, and I think people should realize that we have one problem, is that we don't have enough donors. And it used to be, we talked about this about a month ago, it used to be that you had to be brain dead but had a functioning heart in order to have that heart harvested for a transplant. Right. Duke is pioneering a system where they're using hearts that died. So you have somebody in a wreck and the heart died, you resuscitate the heart, and you can now use that, and they've done that. And the other reason why we didn't have a lot of hearts for the overdose problem in, in um, San Francisco, a sure. lot of those patients were infected with hepatitis C. And so we couldn't use them. And then there was a chief of cardiac surgery in New York, and I, I wish I had the memory for names. He's a very famous guy, and he needed a heart transplant. He was a chief of cardiac surgery, and his heart died. Yeah. And they, they just couldn't find a heart in time. And then they got a phone call. said, you know, Harry... We got a heart, but dang it, the guy's hep C positive. Well, what happened recently is we've developed all these medicines now that kill hep C. It's yeah. a great, great advance. So he said, give me the heart, and I'll take the medicine to kill the hep C. And they thought he was crazy. He said, well, I'm chief of cardiac surgery. Uh, You're going to give me that heart. It does make sense. And he got it, and he went on the medicine after he got hep C, cured the hep C, and now he's got a heart, and he's still doing well. So there's lots of things coming on, and I want everybody to be appreciative of the French for developing this artificial heart. Right. But we got other things. And the number one thing is we need to get more organ donors out there. And, you know, there's a, have you ever heard this? Well, I don't want to be an organ donor because then they want my organ. They won't do everything to keep me alive. Yeah, that's really. Just don't believe that. No. It's no, not no. true. And I, I've been there, and most of the time, you only ask if someone's an organ donor when you're at that stage already. Right. Where you know that someone can't live. And they're not going to let you die if you're in a car wreck and you're on the borderline. Oh, he's a donor. Let's take his heart. No, that no, It doesn't no. happen. I wouldn't think so. Save right. lives. Everybody's last chance to talk to Dr. Franklin Weefall this week uh, without a copay. Uh, (laughs) 919-8686. No matter what your insurance, they'll talk to you in the next, like, 10 minutes. 919-860-9783. Heart Health Radio. Now back to Heart Health. Have a question for Dr. Weefald? Call 919-860-9783. And oddly enough, we actually have someone who's got a question. Diane in Raleigh. Welcome to Heart Health Radio on WPTF. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Yes. What's up? I have a question. Diane, you're going to speak right up, if you would. Okay. I have a couple of questions. Sure. Um, my daughter, she's 24 now, but when she was younger, I took her to the doctor, and she has two valves that compensate for three in the upper chamber of the heart, and I think it's called buy something or bicuspid or tricuspid. Yeah, bicuspid like valve, sure. And um, what I wanted to know is I heard one time on a telephone on TV for the heart that um, when you get a certain age, 45 to 60, you may have problems if you have that. Yes. So I was wondering what kind of problems it might occur. Sure. So just imagine, you know, you remember the, you ever had a Mercedes Benz? You yeah. remember what those the, the symbol looks like? 
where it's got three parts to it. Yeah. Yeah, those are, that's exactly what an aortic valve looks like. So this is the valve that controls the flow of blood out of the heart. So when the heart pumps to get blood into the body, those three leaflets, we call them, open up. And then they capture the blood as the heart relaxes and close. Well, your daughter has only two leaflets, and that's why it's called bicuspid. Most of us have three, or a tricuspid valve. The cusp are the leaflets that open up and then close back down. So you can hear a murmur, and when a murmur is just a noise that a doctor can hear. He'll put the stethoscope on your daughter's chest, sort of on the right upper chest by, by the breastbone, and you hear this sound. Uh-huh. And that is because the blood is flowing only through two leaflets. So it's got a little bit less of a hole to flow through, and it makes a little whooshing noise as the blood is a little more turbulent. Here's the problem. Some people, and, and I, have a, I had an ultrasound tech who had a bicuspid valve, and she was 30 and had to have a valve replacement because it, as the blood is more turbulent, it can cause that, that valve to get even more sticky. And so you get what's called aortic stenosis. And stenosis is a fancy term for saying the valve doesn't open enough, so the heart has to really pump hard to get the blood flow. Now, you can't tell who's going to be the problem and who isn't. So your daughter at 45 or 50 may not have to have her valve fixed. But if she does, it's great news. They can do this without opening up the chest now. We've had a lot of talk about this where they go through the leg. It's called TAVR or TAVR. And they can actually put the valve in through a small tube called a catheter, run up the leg, they cross that old valve, open up a balloon, push the old valve apart, and then a new valve is left in its place. So the most important thing, I think, is she should have a repeat ultrasound every now and then and maybe every few years. And they can watch the progression if there is going to be a progression of what we call the stenosis of this valve. Does that help you? Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, the other thing, the other thing is talk to your dentist and your doctor. Some people with a bicuspid valve, it depends on how tight it is in terms of its constriction, might need to have antibiotics before they go to the dentist. We don't generally do that for a bicuspid valve that is not closing uh, too much. So I would check with your doctor and your dentist if your daughter needs to have those antibiotics because sometimes bacteria can infect the valve through the bloodstream. Diane, thank you. Larry in Four Oaks. Hi, Larry. Got just a couple of minutes. What's going on? Yes, sir. Mr. Dr. Franklin Weepaw. Uh, this is Larry Massengill, Jr. Hey. Of course, you knew my father. Yeah. Larry Massengill, he passed away with a massive heart attack that trapped the pie parking lot in yeah, April it's sad. Second, uh, 2014. But yes. I had an ablation done for SVT December the 13th of 2000. But 20 years later, it's come back again. Got the same problem where they burnt a couple of nerves out of my heart. Yeah, SVT. And we'll have to do it again. And I was just wondering, uh, should I go on medicine, see if it quits, or just go back with the ablation again? So they want they ablated you a long time ago, and now they want to do it again because it's coming back. Is that right? 
yes, sir. Okay. So what is it? SVT is when you have an electrical short circuit, supraventricular tachycardia. You have an electrical short circuit. There's a runaway pathway. So instead of it flowing naturally in a lub-dub, lub-dub, you get this lub-dub-dub-dub-dub-dub-dub-dub-dub-dub-dub because the heart's racing at about 150 beats a minute. And ablation is when they go up your leg and they find where this electrical short circuit is and they freeze it or they burn it with electricity. It's called cryoablation or electroablation. And it works a lot. The problem is it can come back. Now, yours is a little unusual that it came back so late. Um, if your ablation worked well the last time, I got no problem with you getting a second ablation. It's not any more difficult than the first time, especially because you've had all this time in between. Now, there are medicines that work well for this, it all depends on your feeling. Do you want to take a pill every day um, or do you want to just get it fixed? And now the fact that it came back 20 years later doesn't mean it's going to come back a third time. But let me just tell you what I would do if, with my AFib. If it didn't go away right away, I was going to have it ablated because I'd rather take that very low risk of a complication and just have it taken care of. And there's so many people in this area um, who do these ablations and do them well. I don't know anybody who does a bad job in an ablation around here. So you can go to WakeMed, you can go to Rex, you can go to Duke, and they all do a great job in getting these ablations fixed. Larry, thank yeah. you. Hey, yes, listen. Sir, thank you all for your time, and you all have a great show, and I'll listen every Saturday. Well, thank, thank you. you. And I think, you I think of your daddy a lot. He was a great man. Yep, yep. I think about him every day, every time I come to Smithfield over this way. Yep. God bless him. All I'm right. Sure. Take care, Larry. Appreciate it. Well, thanks a lot to everybody who called on today's show. Yeah, I know. Yeah, time's up. Time's up. Just say goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. All right. We're going to be back next week, 12 noon on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Heart Health Radio is for information purposes only. Before taking any action, consult your doctor.